What are we doing here? I found a little oddity I uh, I uh, want to mention before we dive back into the lecture. You found a commodity? Yeah, so I always like to try... They always have them up at the grocery store. They'll have new flavors that companies are trying out. So there's a new can of Pepsi called Nitro Pepsi, and it's a big can. It's marketed... It looks like some sort of energy drink, even though I don't think it is, but it, it's like nitrogen-infused Pepsi. And on the can, it says smaller bubbles, smoother taste. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. So I finally tried it right before we started stream or before we got on the phone. And I taste it. I sit there for a second. I'm like, let me taste this again. So I taste it again. I give it a second, taste it a third time. And I was like, holy shit, Pepsi. All you did is sell, find a way to sell us flat Pepsi. Oh, no. Pepsi. It tastes exactly what Pepsi. All right, here's the thing. I don't know if you're, you like Coke, you like Pepsi, whatever. But it is objectively true that Coke stays fizzy longer than Pepsi. Pepsi goes flat like that. And so it's like Pepsi's like, well, we'll just sell them flat Pepsi. But we can't market it as... Hey, um, you want to drink that nasty flat Pepsi that's set out for two hours? We got you. We'll save you those two hours, and we'll sell it to you directly. But they know they can't market it like that, so they're gonna go, "Hey, um, this is nitro infused Pepsi. That's disgusting." So, it's like, no, seriously. If you you get a chance, you taste it, you're gonna go, "This is flat Pepsi." That's like, that's like being like, <laughs> "Hey, check out this." This exotic coffee. It's just warm coffee. Yuck. Yeah, it's just fucking... God. Or, or like, um, I guess, like, relaxing coffee. Yeah. Coffee that go down without you noticing it. And it's just yeah. room temperature coffee. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> I if, if my coffee's not the perfect hotness, if it's anything less than that, then I hate it. And so it's got to be just right. And I'm totally picky about it. I just always request super hot and then let it get to the right point. But you've got to... Anyway, all right. All right. This is getting into... We're getting into the weeds about our desires about coffee. I wanted to draw attention to the fact that Brian Weeks is in the chat. C6 is here. Delusional Bodlakinian is here. Says, hey, Mikey. And hey, please. Super excited for this stream. Brian Weeks says, Mikey, what would Lacan have to say about my baby? trying to get food by sucking on my nose right now oh i would oh that's that's good the baby's not trying to get food the baby's the, the oral drive is just getting enjoyment from the stimulation of the mouth and so this is why babies will suck on their thumbs right like the thumb is well, you can say it's a substitute nipple but it, it really it, i don't think it's even a substitute so much as it's just the oral drive wants the buildup in the excessive stimulation that comes from the mouth do sucking, you know, or the the mouth chewing or whatever, the mouth doing what it does. And so, what what you're experiencing, Brian, is that the baby, like the ba human babies, don't stay on need; they go into drive, which is just the enjoyment of a repetitive activity that builds up excitation in the body. And so, yeah, you're dealing you're dealing with a little baby death drive. Cute. 
Cool. So, uh, the commodity that you, you, you opened with the commodity and, and you alluded to a lecture, you alluded to an ongoing lecture. Um, how about just for the good of anybody like who's just joining in right now? Now, I think that a lot of people, if you're just joining in right now, they'll probably realize that this is part of an ongoing thing. And if they're interested, then they'll go check it out, right? You know, we're not going to spend the whole time going over everything we've already gone over, but in broad strokes, what have we gone over so far, Michael? Uh, what we are doing in this ongoing series is working our way through the intricacies, details of Slavoj Žižek's theory of ideology and what makes his theory of ideology so unique and so special is how he brings in Lacanian psychoanalysis into the concept of ideology and he also brings in Hegelian dialectics but for our purposes we primarily focus on the Lacanian side of things in his work and this is a, a great lead-in so if you could say, well, you know, I know what ideology is, you know, I study Marxism, I get that ideology plays a key role for understanding how capitalism reproduces itself. This is the the standard Marxist take, especially with the cultural turn that took place, um, post-war era, especially. Hmm. Um, so I actually, it's, it's great that you did this because I had two paragraphs I wanted to read because I've said this in some of the other streams, but I don't think I've ever said it this clearly or this succinctly. So why Zizek's theory of ideology? Well, let me read this. What's the big difference between Marx and Zizek on ideology? For Marx, ideology is false consciousness, which means that ideology is a mistake in representation. It's a mistake in how we perceive things in front of us, states of affairs. False consciousness is viewing reality through a certain mistaken conception or representations, which we will say here are misrepresentations. For Zizek, reality itself is ideological. The point being that ideology has a much stronger hold on us than Marx or the Marxists were aware of. When human beings are simply mistaken about something, it's not very difficult to correct their thinking. For example, if someone falsely claims that Abraham Lincoln was the 15th president of the United States, then a simple trip to Wikipedia is usually all it would take to get the person to fully accept that Lincoln was actually the 16th president and not the 15th. That was James Buchanan. The person will likely say, oops, my bad, and that'll be it. Mistake corrected, problem solved. But now try to do that with your uncle who just loves the shit out of Fox News. Good fucking luck with that. Why? Because people enjoy their ideology, they are profoundly libidinally invested in it in a way that goes far beyond the simple conceptions or misconceptions they have. This is precisely why class consciousness is so hard to develop. If it were as simple as working class people being mistaken in how they conceptualize or misrepresent their economic slash material conditions, then an international socialist revolution would have happened a long time ago. The point is that they never fundamentally, or I'm sorry, the point is that they fundamentally enjoy capitalist ideology. As Zizek points out, this is why the fight scene in John Carpenter's great film, They Live, 
goes on for so long. Hmm. Ideology is something that you cling to desperately and you, you like have to get it, it beaten out of you, right? It's not just something, oh yeah, whatever, I give it up. No, it's like somebody has to kick the shit out of you and, or kick the shit out of the ideology in you. Which is, I, this is another reason why Zizek loves Fight Club so much is because he's beating the shit out of himself, right? Right. And what he's beating out of him is his consumer ideology. So one's ideology is one's default relation to the world. Ideology is one's most basic orientation and spontaneous familiarity with one's social reality. To disrupt a person's ideology is to impose a certain traumatic violence on them, despite the fact that it is also liberating. This is why Zizek says, freedom hurts. People will kill and be killed in order to preserve their ideology. This has everything to do with jouissance, enjoyment, fantasy, and not with simple misconceptions. Simply put, ideology is libidinal and not merely cognitive. So, right. Right. It's not just, to, it's not, it's, it's never a matter of like the letter of what's being said. I mean, people can get really fixated on it. And for some, actually for some exceptional people, maybe they actually, they do focus on that. But for, but the point is, is like, that's almost inseparable from. Yeah. And that's a great point. From desire. Yeah. No, uh, no. What you said, like some, some people might actually objectively get fixated on official ideological decrees, right? But Zizek actually has argued many times that the person who takes ideology explicitly serious, that, that it's serious for them at the explicit level of things, and they, they actually over-identify with it, they're the biggest threat to the ideology. Because his whole point is, even outside, he talks about cynical ideology, and we haven't really gotten there. But for Zizek, the proper functioning of ideology actually entails that for ide ideological subjects must keep a certain distance from the ideological symbolic framework, i.e. societies, norms, practices, rules, etc., in order to be a properly functioning ideological subject. So this distance from your, your law, your symbolic order, and your ideology is precisely what helps to reproduce it. If you over-identify with it, then you can, then it's like you're putting a pressure on the system that it doesn't actually want. Like it's saying, hey, 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 chill out. Like, you know, like read between the lines, bud. We're not, don't expect me to like actually make good on what, like, you know, you have to keep a certain distance from it. If you over-identify with it, you could actually put a burdensome pressure on it to do certain things that it doesn't want you to do. So that's what, where what's, what's like, I mean, do you have an example in mind or an, or like an anecdote that might be a good illustration of the point? Yeah. Like if you like Zizek's example was the, the, the Stalinist subject who actually took, I'll put it Stalinist ideology. Absolutely. Seriously. Like, you know, if, if, if you're demanding the, the the flourishing of the working class and the flourishing of the proletariat and you're living in Russia and things aren't going that good, like the whole Stalinist ideology, of course, at the official level, totally celebrates worker revolution, worker international or solidarity, right, whatever. 
but at the implicit level of actually existing Stalinist ideology, it's like, don't dem like that's not how this works. Don't actually demand that. Mm. So it's as if, if, like, if you take Marxism, Leninism seriously in the Stalinist context, you're actually defying the Stalinist ideology. Is it because the whole part? What, what the whole point is that, and this is the, we've, we've tackled this, but Zizek's whole point is that in an ideological system, you have explicit rules, implicit rules, and then you have the form of enjoyment that is transgressive to that law, to that, that system of rules and norms and practices. And so, built into every law, symbolic order, social order, there's the official mandates, there's the implicit ways of bending those mandates or getting around them, and then there's the forms of transgression that actually reproduce the system instead of breaking it apart. But there's still forms of transgression. They violate the ex explicit rules of the law, but they violate them in such a way as to preserve that law that they violate. And that's the distance, right? So, okay, there's there's the, the official decrees, and then there's the inherent transgression, and that inherent transgression can be said to be an ideological disidentification, but that is precisely what keeps the ideological system going. And so if somebody was to actually say, I'm living by the letter of the law, fuck this inherent transgression, fuck these forms of enjoyment that actually go against the official principles, then you are a threat to the ideological system. So what are, what is, so I'm trying to think of like examples of some forms of transgression that's, that, maintain okay, okay. So, maintain the system and I'm, I'm like i'm thinking about like euphoria for example and all of these kids are obviously being transgressive in all these different ways but none of those n none of that inherently actually challenges the the system itself no like teenage rebellion is almost a rite of passage and they i mean it is a rite of passage or at least it used to be i again i've told you i have a weird reading of euphoria where i don't I don't think the kids are really representative of Zoomers, right. but that's another thing. Um, at least traditionally, since especially the post-war era, we got to remember the whole category of teenager as we know it is a kind of symbolic construction of recent times. It, right. The teenager really didn't really take hold until the 1950s with pop culture and everything like that. I don't know. I don't uh, I, Obviously there were people who were that age, of course, but no, but the, it, the it became, it became, oh yeah. No. Yeah. The symbolic identity and, and it being a, a, a category people used to think about the world is a more recent invention. I don't have a date on it. Does anybody. Generational identity, the way yeah. we talk about it. Right. Like that's, of course there were differences in generations in the past, but this kind of mechanical, every 10, 15 years, there's a new generational identity or whatever, that's the product of consumer capitalism. That's not, you know, that's not something that has a long historical. Yeah, the idea of, the, the idea of like, you know, uh, millennials and, and Gen X and, and boomers and all of this They're stuff. In terms of the, the, the technology and the commodities they happen to consume, 
and be libidinally invested in. Right. Yeah, and they and it, and these exist within the context of consumerism, where where each of these like a person's identity in respect to these categories is supposed to say something about the what they desire, you know, and and those desires are being cultivated in specific ways, you know. So. But here, just to, to return to the, the point, so one of Zizek's, the well, he has two uh, two examples of inherent transgression that he often went to mm. in his early days. So one of them is from the film A Few Good Men. Maybe I'll just read this because this is not very long. This is from Metastases of Enjoyment, which is, I think, his fifth or sixth book. Let me pull this up real quick. Salomon DeCosta is in the chat. Wanted to say hi. What's up? Coming at us from Katowice, Poland. Um, I showed I showed the video that he shared with us um, on stream the other day, but there wasn't a lot of people in there. And this is kind of more like going down for the record. I think maybe we'll show it on this stream at some point later. But um, anyway, I never got to see the video. You didn't see the video. Remember, I told you it wouldn't open it. The the I didn't get to see it. Oh snap! Because yeah, well, I played it out on stream, but you didn't see it then. Okay, cool. Well, everybody, we've got a treat for you then. It's something really, really cool. But we'll we'll save that for later. So, uh, what were you pulling up? Okay, so uh, one of his great examples of this type of transgression that keeps a symbolic order going, that reproduces it, that that sustains it is the Rob Reiner film, A Few Good Men. Have you ever seen this one? No. Okay. Well, this was a big movie back in the, uh, I'd say early 90s, right? Late 80s, early 90s. Is one of the, the movies that all of our parents had to rent from Blockbuster when it came out. The rest of us kids, we didn't give a shit about it. But uh, it does have a great example of inherent transgression. So this is from... Um, this is from his book, uh, Zizek's book, Metastases of Enjoyment. And he opens up by saying, well, this is the third chapter, but he opens up by saying, the proper way to approach the theme, psychoanalysis, and the law is to ask, what kind of law is the object of psychoanalysis? The answer is, of course, superego. Superego emerges where the law, the public law, the law articulated in public discourse, fails. Right. So, again, we're talking about explicit, implicit rules that are the official mandates and decrees of a social order. But at some point, those fail or they cease to apply. Right. They have a limit. But. The limit is actually built into this order itself, which is to say there's a place where the official mandates are suspended and something else occurs. But his point is that this something else that occurs where the public official rules fail is su super egoic enjoyment or inherent transgression, which it's deceptive, but it actually keeps the social order going, even though it's a rupture within the, the social order. And so he says, at this point of failure, the public law is compelled to search for support in an illegal enjoyment. And so the idea is that 
every law is actually not nearly as innocent as it wants to present itself to be. A law just wants to say, I'm good, I maintain order, I, I keep things running, I am concerned with fairness and justice, and without me, it'd just be anarchy and chaos. But Zizek's point is that, yeah, fair enough, but every law will also have, it has to, in a sense, reward its subjects, and it rewards them with certain forms of extreme perverse enjoyment that is the dark side of the law, right? And so, Zizek continues, superego is the obscene nightly law that necessarily redoubles and accompanies as its shadow the public law. This inherent and constitutive splitting of the law is the subject of Rob Reiner's film A Few Good Men. The court martial drama about two Marines accused of murdering one of their fellow soldiers. The military prosecutor claims that the two Marines act as a... Oh, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. The military prosecutor claims that the two Marines act was a deliberate murder, whereas the defense succeeds in proving that the defendants simply followed the so-called red code. Or, I'm sorry, code red. That was a weird... Misreading. Okay. Uh which authorizes the clandestine nighttime beating of a fellow soldier who, in the opinion of his peers or superior officer, has broken the ethical code of the Marines. And so, obviously, the official law or code of the Marines would never authorize Marines to beat the shit out of another soldier if they think he's not living up to expectations. But within this system that actually functions, right? And so the function of this code red is extremely interesting. It condones an act of transgression, a legal punishment of a fellow soldier. At the same time, it reaffirms the cohesion of the group. It's like a, a, a guilt or a stain or a sin they all get to share in. And like group cohesion depends on rendering, getting your hands dirty, right? Mm. Partaking of the same enjoyment that the the group partakes in that is transgressive, illegal, obscene, whatever, right? So it calls for an act of supreme identification with group values, this form of so it's like, yeah, you can you can say we all are of the same group because we follow these official, ethical, social, political protocols, but to truly be part of the group is to sin or to transgress in the right way. And that's what really makes you a member of the group. So to sin in the right way. Yeah. 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 Tran transgression that gives you access to the inner circle of the group. Right. <clears throat> Such a code must remain undercover at night. Unacknowledged, unutterable in public. Everybody pretends to know nothing about it or even actively denies its existence. It represents the spirit of the community at its purest, exerting the strongest pressure on the individual to comply with its mandate of group identification. Yet, simultaneously, it violates the explicit rules of community life. The plight of the two accused soldiers is that they are unable to grasp this exclusion of code red from the big other, the domain of public law. So the big other, as you know, is social authority, it maintains certain norms, practices, customs, 
etc., that are the official ways that one must behave within the social order, right? But again, the this is where you have this split between the big other, which is part of the official explicit rules of a society, and the super, and the super ego. ego. Yeah. Which is the underside of it. So it's like we have two social authorities. They both are at odds with each other. And this battle between them actually only serves the reproduction of the social order as a whole. It doesn't break out of it. So they desperately, uh, these soldiers desperately ask themselves, what did we do wrong since they simply followed the order of the superior officer, played by Jack Nicholson? Where does this splitting of the law into the written public law and its underside, the unwritten obscene secret code, come from? From the incomplete, non-all character of the public law. Explicit public rules do not suffice, so they have to be supplemented by a clandestine unwritten code aimed at those who, although they violate no public rules, maintain a kind of inner distance and do not truly identify with the spirit of the community. So this is an instance where if you keep a distance from this, whatever social order's form of inherent transgression, you're not really an ideological subject, right? I don't, but, under, I don't, I don't, I don't understand what that means. So wait. Okay, I'm saying to be part of the inner circle, to be part of the group, you have to become close, so to speak. You have to... You have to get your hands dirty in their form of enjoyment that they can't officially identify with, right? There's some form of obscene inherent transgression that you must partake in to be part of the group. So that's where it's like you do have to get close to this aspect of ideology to be an ideological subject. You have to enjoy the way the group enjoys. But this is where you also... but in doing that, you're keeping a... So in coming close to the obscene form of enjoyment of the group, you're distancing yourself from the explicit rules. So if you distance yourself from the obscene enjoyment and and say that the official rules must be maintained all the time, then you're threatening the obscene enjoyment that holds the group together. Therefore, you become a threat to the group. In an attempt to bring in new people to the world of philosophy and theory while building on relationships already established, we are doing a countrywide tour of the United States this fall. What's up, guys? It's Anna Dave. Are we coming to a city or town near you? Do you think there is a venue or audience in your local region that would be interested in a lecture or facilitated discussion about existentialism, critiques of therapism, PMC ideology, self-help, introduction to philosophy, or the time-energy critique of any of those things. This speaking and discussion facilitation tour will include the Pacific Northwest in mid-August, the Kansas City, Missouri area late August or early September, Philadelphia at the beginning of October, and really we're going to be all over the area there, hopefully, so get in contact with us if you think that we should come visit your state, Phoenix, Arizona, mid-October, and SoCal, especially San Diego, late October. I say especially San Diego because we already have our guide for the San Diego region. 
What's the difference between a host, a guide, and a volunteer, you ask? Well, thanks for asking, actually. The volunteer role is for people who want to put up posters or in other ways promote the events that will be occurring in their town or city. Whereas the host might have a guest bedroom, guest house, or a place that we can park our van so that we can sleep in our van. We need to know if you would have like bathroom facilities or anything like that. And so the form on the website is where you can tell us what you have to offer. Guiding, on the other hand, though, people who love to guide take a lot of pride in their local knowledge. A good example of that would be Michael Downs when I visited him in Raytown, Missouri. And he took me into Kansas City and we had barbecue and he took me to the mall and to all these other landmark places from his life growing up there. Um, but a more recent example would be my friend Michael in Poland who took us around Katowice, Poland and basically gives a historical and sociological analysis of everything. And it was amazing. It was, it was one of the coolest things we've ever experienced and it made us realize some people just want to provide the space and privacy whereas other people want to take you out and show you around and so if you're interested in being a volunteer host or guide we have a special form for that so please fill out your information and uh, get in contact with us as soon as possible so we can fit you into the schedule because we'll love to meet you touch base with the local community and if you don't think anyone else in your area is interested in the things that you're interested in, if you don't think anyone else is into this stuff, well, we might be able to surprise you. When I saw that poster, Bolgrillard in Boise fucking Idaho, are you kidding me? It was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer, you know, really was. And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in, in futility. I'd labored in solitude for so long. I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off. This tour is going to bring together a lot of people who want to be based in text with the people they're in conversation with and yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. The only other thing that I want to say is that Michael Downs' first book is going to be published by Theory Underground really soon here. I've got another book coming out really soon here. These books will be spread throughout the United States on this tour. So I'm hoping to be able to do some actual book launch events at various bookstores. Outside of that, I guess the last thing that I would say is that Michael Downs is gearing up to teach For They Know Not What They Do by Slavoj Žižek. We're putting out all these introduction videos and other interviews related to the topic of Hegel, Lacan, Žižek because we want to give people an accessible and sturdy basis in the discourse. The problem is, is that Michael Downs is very busy having to work at a wage slave job. And so if you want to help in freeing Mikey, make sure to go to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the dangerous baby and make a donation thank you i would be remiss to close this out without a quick shout out to our patrons and our anonymous donors thank you so much for the donations already we've only been around for a month we already got over three thousand dollars in donations um and so thank you and uh stay tuned for the app which is on its way there will be a theory underground app 
So the current setup is that it is a social media site built around courses where you can suppose that people who are involved in the discussions have a shared interest in the same or similar texts and where you can assume in a lot of the discussions that, yeah, people have read the stuff that you're reading, uh, that you're bringing into dialogue. And so, uh, for instance, the idea of the university by Carl Jaspers, dedicated forum. Slavoj Zizek, before they don't know what they do, dedicated forum. And then as people take the course over the years, new people will be coming into that forum. And so if you get in there early, you'll be able to see how the conversation evolves. And as new people add into the conversation, it'll bring back memories and like things that you want to work through, questions that you had with the first time that you read the text. And so I'm really excited for this. The reason I've built this website is because I think that this is what's lacking in so many other spaces, is that ability to return, to be able to communicate after the fact and in a sustained way on a platform that's not attention grabby and annoying like discord and so stay tuned because there is an app on the way thank you to our donors if you want to donate go to theory underground.com forward slash support thank you